Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, good people of the earth, welcome to our session here today. My name is Fikri and we are recording the latest episode of Thoughts on Films, the podcast that thinks loud about films in Malaysia and beyond. Now, it's been a while since we've released a new episode and we're hopeful that uh, near the end of the year 2022, we shall get some of that renewed energy, you know, a renewed spirit for the year to kind of just really push us into the new year and kind of bring in new voices and new thoughts about new films. And on that note, good people, we are here. We do have a new voice, a new perspective, and we are going to be talking about new films. And, and that person who's with us here today is uh, Emily. Good afternoon, Emily. How are you doing? Hi, sir. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> All right. I guess, ladies and gentlemen, we can surmised by the sir that she addressed me with that she is yet another former student of mine that I've just um, weaponized as a way of just creating more content online. I'm always keen to know the perspective of you know my students about a lot of things that they may know far more than I do because today's session, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be taking a closer look at the country of Myanmar, right? Uh, in particular, we're going to see how this goes, but in particular, in the first part, we're going to focus on a film called Whispers of Silence. Uh, it's a short film that was released a number of years ago, but you know, I have saw it, I've seen it a number of times uh, since then. I thought it was interesting. I think it'd be quite cool and fun to kind of just have a chat with Emily about that. And then later on um, in part two, we kind of see, we'll, we'll take a closer look at the bigger picture context of, you know, maybe short filmmaking, film appreciation in Myanmar and whatnot. Um, but before we do that, perhaps uh, uh, good Emily here uh, would be so kind as to just introduce herself a little bit to the audience. Uh, for those who may not know who you are, um, what would you like them to know about you before we get going with the episode, Emily? Hi, I'm Emily and I am I'm currently studying digital film production. And um, so I grew up my whole life in Myanmar, Yangon. Uh, before I moved here in 2019. So I guess I know a little bit more about my country. Uh, yes, certainly more than I do. Uh, I must say that um, as much as there's a lot that's going on there, that's wonderful um, in terms of the creative arts and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I don't know enough about that. Uh, I'm fairly certain that you are going to enlighten me as we go further into this particular episode. Thank you very much for that, Emily. And without further ado, we are going to get straight into the film, um, Whispers of Silence here. This is a short film released, I believe in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not one, it's so good. It has not one, but two directors, Emily, all right? We're looking at Zor Bobo Hain and uh, Mang Pon as the, the two directors here. Uh, Zor also um, serves as the producer. Um, and, you know, we'll get to the other technical bits about the cast and crew later on. But it's a synopsis that I'll share with you guys first, ladies and gentlemen, right? Because this is a film set during the uh, Tingjan Festival. Um, and the story is of a woman who has to struggle between her attachment to her husband and having an empathy for his loneliness. So it's, just, ooh. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty intriguing, right? And if you watch the film, which we'll share the link of, in the show notes later on, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see that this is um, an intriguing film that, that explores a lot of things in a number of, of uh, different ways. Uh, I think on that note, I'm keen to just check in with Emily. You know, you've seen the film, I've seen the film. I wonder if you can share with us maybe a little bit of your favorite moment or your favorite scene in the film and why that might be the case. Um, I think the, I think the moment where she 
kind of um, where we find out as an audience that she's actually not a person, but rather a ghost. Um, breaking plates, breaking glasses, that's very common in Myanmar to like know that um, it's a sign of ominous, like ominous feeling. And plus when it happens out of nowhere, it's usually ghosts like associated to spirits. So that's when I knew, oh, she's just a ghost. She's actually not there as a person. I think that's my favorite moment. And how, I like how they didn't react too bigly about it. Like too, because um, usually in movies, they will, this is a short film, so it's a little bit different, but usually in films, they would freak out dramatically about it. But here he just knew that it, it's, it's his wife that's there in spirit. He just, he just can feel her in, the, in a sense. That's very intriguing. Is this like a common thing in Myanmar where if you hear the sound of a broken plate, immediately people will associate it with some kind of spiritual presence or a ghost or something like that? Especially when someone recently passed away in the house. So like when my grandma passed away, so um, we didn't know. She really likes to travel to Mandalay because a lot of our relatives were there. And... One day, my recently she passed away like three days ago, and then she, um, one of our relatives called us and say, "Hey, the tissue roll, the tissue paper roll, is hasn't stopped rolling. I think it's grandma. I think she's here, like visiting us. So something similar to that, like breaking uh, plates or like even like a door sounds. Like some um, when my mom was younger, she would tell me that her." Uh, her dad will come back to check on her. Like he recently passed away, but then he would do all the things that it it could probably be something that they f only feel, but we just assume that it's him. Like he will still open the door to check on them or like, um, you know, these mosquito nets, um, he will like pull it up to check if all of the kids are there. So she still feels him, although it's not him. I I, I don't know how to explain. Yeah, it's a very spiritual belief that we have. Oh, that's brilliant. I think, uh, you know, the way you explained it there is, is um, something that perhaps a lot of other Malaysians and Indonesians can kind of get on board with. Certainly there's, um, you know, a fair amount of us who do believe um, in, in such spirits and their presence and, and what they do, even after perhaps the person has passed away. On that note, you said that your grandmother passed away a few days ago. This, this oh, no. is like, recent. No, no, it's, I mean it as in like my grandmother passed away a few days ago back then. Right. Okay. Understood. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All the same. I, you know, I, you know, sorry for your loss. Um, my condolences and such. Um, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I think it is enlightening to us. I said earlier about a number of different parts or the, 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 I guess you could say the cultural or the spiritual side of things that we wouldn't have known otherwise. So thank you very much for that. Um, I think that's one of my favorite moments in, in the film as well. And, and since we're kind of talking about that, I like how the film is actually very economical in a number of different ways. Um, and then basically what I mean by that, ladies and gentlemen, is that you kind of have like, I guess you could say, uh, uh, the, the minimum number of locations, camera shots and movements, right? So a lot actually comes from the actors. I, th I would imagine that this is not really uh, the easiest of films to to act in. Uh, in this, on, on this note, just very briefly, just want to point out that the actors here, um, 
I believe it is the 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 woman who is this the ghost. Uh, she's uh, played by the by the actress Shah, and uh, the husband is uh, Minyo, um, who also appeared in a previous film um, for Mang Phone, but um, we will get to him a bit more later on. But nevertheless, the point remains that you know there's a lot of the emotional that uh, side of things that has to come from the actor. It's not really as much from the the camera side of things. So there's you know if you look at you know, quite a number of scenes. It's just composed of three, four shots, you know, and then things just happen in there. Um, and there's also a lot of negative space on screen, which means that, you know, you have like one person hanging around just on one side of the screen, then there's basically nothing else on the other side. But it kind of just lends the sense, uh, I guess you could say a sense that somebody is still there, even when they're not there. Um, so there's this kind of um, emotional imbalance that is, played out through the visual imbalance. But the point I'm trying to make here is that all this comes out in a very uh, economical way, building up to that scene. And the reason why I'm explaining all that is that when we get to the scene, this this is what I'm looking at here. Right? It's this, I think it's only one or two shots uh, at the most. You know, I wrote down here my notes for that scene. Sudden explosion of broken plates and cutleries equals massive impact, especially given the relative silence up till now. Camera movement also match the emotional turmoil. You know, you have plates and glasses. And what I wrote down here is that plates and glasses tend to be what people get as wedding gifts. So, you know, if you get married and then say, like, oh, what, do we, what shall we get <laughs> for this? You know, this bunch mm -hmm. of newlyweds who start building their own home for the first time, you know. So some people will kind of get, uh, you know, all sorts of other household stuff like, vacuum cleaners um, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. My brother-in-law, I remember, when he got married, um, he got uh, this huge, like, 60, 70-inch television. Uh, and then my father-in-law said, thank you very much, I'll take that. <laughs> so there's, um, you know, you get all sorts of stuff. But a, a very common thing that a lot of people tend to kind of uh, receive in this context is the, the, the you know, plates, cutleries, um, and, and whatnot. And... And I've always seen this as a kind of representation of the marriage side of things to say that this is, you know, you, this is the home that you're building here. You know, you know, we kind of live here together. We eat together. This is our thing. So when that scene took place, you know, when, when we saw uh, Shah just like smashing plates, absolutely smashing plates um, on, on the floor there, I thought, oh, you know what? Uh, this is kind of representative of... Um, their, their, their family, their, their relationship, and finally their love just kind of breaking apart and, and whatnot in this very violent uh, explosion of emotions. So, so that was my reading of it initially, ladies and gentlemen. But I think, I think we can all agree that Emily's explanation there is um, just perhaps a lot more accurate. <laughs> I think just makes a lot more sense um, and whatnot. But I, yeah, I think it's still something worth considering here um, in, in, in that regard. Um, so that's, uh, in, in a visual sense, coming back to you, Emily, I wonder if perhaps there is like something, because fil this film doesn't really work a lot with a, with a lot of dialogue. So there's a lot of very visual scenes, you know, where the shots kind of just tell you everything you need to know about the characters, about the, the, the moment that we are at in the story. I wonder if you can identify for us that maybe something else that you're a fan of, visually speaking, in the film, like something that stands out for you in in perhaps another scene or something in another scene um, or something like that? I don't know. Like, um, I think it's like the photo frame 
photo frame where like he has his wife's um, picture up. And the, the one thing that kind of bugs me was like he was drinking wine a lot, which is like with the house that he lives in. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me that Burmese people drink wine at night. I mean, we could, but it's such a bougie thing to do. <laughs> such an expensive Right. Probably. So, so, th- so this is like seen as um, like an odd thing for him to do in this context, yeah. E, to me, yes. I don't no. know. Can can we say is is it like maybe like a normal thing? Maybe in the context of like somebody is grieving, trying to get over someone, trying to drown themselves in their sorrows, because uh, it feels like that would be a common thing. Um, oh, no, well, I'm just talking about the drink itself. The wine is the weird part. Maybe he could have been drinking whiskey or something. Like Burmese people like whiskey a lot, really. There's older generations like whiskey. So I was like, hmm, why wine, not whiskey? How about that? Ladies and gentlemen, our main character is actually aspirational, you know. He's, he's still, you know, <laughs> he's still um, feeling sorrowful, but still in the future hopeful for, you know, trying to kind of get, climb up the ladders of society perhaps, Um so, so there's that. That's actually interesting. And we are going to get to the wine scene a bit more later on because apparently there's a bit of a controversy about that. And um, I, you know, hopefully uh, uh, Emily can shed more light with regards to what is and is not allowed on screen and such. Um, but we're going to move on. And, and the next part here, kind of just tying in with the visual side of things I was talking about earlier, is that for me, at least, um, I see uh, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of shots in the, in the film which works very much as a frame within a frame. Um, you see a lot of these shots here, and then you have like doorways, you have windows, you have people standing at doorways, and then they are shown through another doorway. So that's like um, you know a lot of this frame within a frame. Number one and number two, how, I, I I like very much how um, the the directors here kind of just really work it so that even though you see the husband and the wife on screen together at the same time, in many parts of the scene, they are kind of very far apart from one another. You know, they are within their own frames, so to speak. So they're there, but they're not there, or they're there, but they're not together. So visually, I think that's a part of me that I thought was very interesting and very well done. And there's something else in the visual sense that I'm also quite interested in, um, Emily, because I see in the background there's a, a picture uh, in the living room of, of the couple's home. There's a picture of Aung San Suu Kyi, um, in the background on a calendar. Uh, I wonder, like, uh, how common is this? Uh, first of all, how common is it for uh, the Burmese to kind of like put pictures of politicians or, you know, national heroes and whatnot on the wall? And, and secondly, like, um, how common is it to have pictures of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi here in this context? Um, it's quite common, actually. It's like, yeah, it's more common than you would think uh, to have a calendar with um Aung San picture because it's this this 2000 this was shot in 2018 so the election happened in 2015 so we we have a taste of the real democracy in during these years so and Aung San Suu Kyi's party um, NLD is the only other party apart from the military one. So like the Democratic Party. So we would root for them um, regardless of um, regardless of like 
if we think they're good or not. We idolize this person. And we, Burmese people, we just like love this person and adore this person so much that we would have her picture in our houses. Uh, we would wear her as a t-shirt. Uh, yeah, it's quite common because this is the first person that brought in democracy into our country. And yeah, so there's this image of her being idolized, I guess. Yeah, that's very intriguing. Um, I say that because in in certainly in in a lot of um, the Malaysian context, uh, you know, you do have, for instance, yes, pictures of the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, the agong, but usually you see them largely in government buildings or, or other such institutions. You know, you go to the office to do something and then there's a picture of them there but in person you know in the personal space or in the personal home i mean i <laughs> i don't know um how many people are fans of um you know anwar ibrahim i'm sure yes he has a lot of fans but um to the extent of putting a picture of him um that on a calendar in in, in you know on the wall and whatnot I, I don't know how many malaysians would do that i'm sure a fair number would do that now it's just that it's not a common thing for me. So, so when I saw the picture of that in in this film, I just thought, yeah, I gotta ask Emily about this because, um, again, I have no, you know, I have no real idea about the context around this. But all the same, um, thank you very much for that. Uh, another big element uh, in the film, as we've mentioned earlier, right? The the story is set uh, around uh, Ting Chan, which is the Burmese New Year Water Festival, which uh, usually takes place in April. It is a Buddhist festival celebrated over four to five days and is comparable to the likes of um, Songkran in Laos and Thailand, um, apparently. So um, we don't really have that in Malaysia or in Indonesia. And as much as we say that we can kind of celebrate, um, you know, various elements of, of Buddhism, for instance, um, uh, in this way, um, obviously, you know, well, we kind of just don't go to the extent where we have like, water festivals as a major thing. So I must say that here, there's a fair amount of ignorance on my part. Uh, Emily, tell us a bit more about Ting Chan and, um, you know, the importance of this in, in the Burmese calendar, if you will, and maybe some of your experience of it. Um, so Ting Chan is a Burmese New Year where, like, it's a water festival. Basically, we just splash water um, to each other um it's a combination of tradition uh cultural thing plus um religion i guess uh we do this every year around april like probably the second week uh it changes every year but just uh, just by a few days um sometimes it's six days sometimes we get 10 days of holidays <laughs> so uh, ten it, days, yeah, oh, that's brilliant. Days, including like New Year, I guess New Year, Burmese New Year. Um, so it's a very long holiday, one of the very, one of the longest holidays for us. So we, this is very big for us. Um, the symbol symbolization of like this water is just to wash away your, we call it heat your burdens, your sadness, your anything that's you're feeling, you've been feeling the whole year is washed away um, from with this water that you play. Um, and uh, it's kind of a peaceful thing to do. Um, but lately, I think it's more like a fun thing for younger people. It's just uh, becoming more like a 
festival that they have fun and get drunk uh, sort of yeah <laughs> yeah by by not drinking wine maybe more of whiskey and wine perhaps <laughs> all right um i think that's quite interesting because you talk about you know using water as a way of washing away the heat um there's um, I think one part of the scene, if I recall correctly, uh, we, we have that in the husband. So basically in the story, the husband is not so keen on kind of joining his friends for this particular activity. Um, they eventually dragged him along anyways, and he agrees to go there. And then there's one bit where he's just seated on a chair somewhere. And mm-hmm. he's actually like having, <laughs> having um, uh, a few drags of a cigarette. And and then somebody came along. I think it's the girl who's like the the, the third party, if you will, yeah. at the end of the story, who kind of like, you know, poured the water over him. Would that be kind of, um, how do I say this? Would that be uh, correct, therefore, in trying to say that in this case, it is the directors here who kind of want to try to say that this new girl is somebody who's who's therefore trying to wash away you know, his sadness or his sorrow or his, you know, you know, the 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 heat of yesteryear, so to speak. Um, so there is therefore significance in this scene of her actually doing that to him. Is that like um does it have that significance as well, do you think? It's very possible, but I feel like it happened accidentally. Not I don't think it was done purposely. Because it's like um somewhat uh this is this also kind of happens a lot uh, during Tianjin people find or like get into new relationships while like playing with uh, playing water with them so I think that's yeah I think it happened accidentally uh, now that you've explained that I think it's probably not so accidental after all you know because um, uh, I, I did make a note I didn't include it in the rundown that I sent to you but I did make a note uh, uh, about how you know, I wondered whether it's like a thing where if you fancy someone, right, it, and the yeah. way of you showing that you fancy someone if it, it's just for you to throw some water yeah. over them. Because I, as I, as, uh, you know, watching that scene, I thought, oh, there's, there's probably something here um, that is worth analyzing. So that was a bit of my analysis. Uh, again, socially, would I be right in saying that, that, you know, in in uh, in Myanmar, during Ting Chan, it's a little bit like, you know, the the, the kind of secret Valentine that you kind of, uh, you know, in a, in a way, you're trying to tell someone that you like them. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> I guess like, when you can see someone, you just splash water in the face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, hey, bro, I love you. Splash. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's one way of getting people's attention, ladies and gentlemen. Um, not so subtle, but absolutely, you know, a very effective way of getting things done. Just so you know, Emily, um, it, in Malaysia, uh, I think we don't really have a lot of that, but we have the saying called tangkap basah. So tangkap basah is basically like being caught in the act of, you know, doing it. And and it's called tangkap basah because if you translate it to English, it means being caught wet. Um, tangkap is caught, wet is basah. So it's just like, <laughs> I think this whole notion of wetness in Southeast Asia, ladies and gentlemen, I think there's something about that that has to be connected to notions of, of romance and, and love and whatnot. But perhaps we'll save that for another podcast on another day because we do have a number of other things to kind of get through. One final thing about Ting Chan there, I kind of just want to ask you, um, in the film at least, um, this might be more connected to the context you explained earlier, but I'm uh, quite interested to know about this as well because um, they're in the car, 
you know, they're driving around, there's water being splashed in the car and whatnot. And then there are people on trucks kind of also shouting, you know, democracy slogans, for instance, right? So is Ting Chan also another context, another space in which people can share more of these political ideas uh, in addition to merely spiritual and social ones? Um, I wouldn't like relate them both together because this doesn't happen a lot. I think this is something that direct, the director wanted to put in. Um, so we got our election in 2015, NLD won, and in 2019 or 2020, we were supposed to have another election again. So maybe they were um, in a way promoting for that. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, perhaps it's just me being guilty of reading too much into something that was, I don't know. So, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, as much as we would like to think of filmmakers uh, with who have very fixed and firm ideas about what happens. Sometimes you go on the set and you think, huh, that looks cool. I'll just record it and see what happens. So sometimes, you know, you, know, you think that, oh, is it, oh what, is, what does this mean? You know, does this kind of symbolize a sense that they can't escape from their social structures, et cetera, et cetera. And then the director will just say, oh, nope. Uh, it just happens to be there when we recorded it. And uh, I thought it looks nice. So yes, <laughs> so it could, might be more... Uh, a happenstance more than anything else. Um, but all the same, I'm going to save a bit more of the quote-unquote um, political chat uh, later on, perhaps in the second half of today's show. Uh, coming back to the film here. Uh, so I've talked about quite a number of different things here. Just running through the, the, the bits here. Um, and again, uh, there, there's uh, a major part of the film, Emily, before I kind of just round up this part of the, the discussion here. Um, is the holy water. And there's a part here um, in the film where it says that Tubasaniya Kamava is actually you know, an, an event or a day used to exercise spirits and whatnot. Um, and is, is this, like again, kind of related to what we were talking about, uh, about uh, Ching Yan earlier, late, uh, you know, when you said, you know, you use water to kind of wash away the heat, you know, in this case, in the film, ladies and gentlemen, the idea is that you can kind of use the holy water to um, just cleanse your, maybe yourself or the location or the home that you're in. And so if you do that, you will not have any more of this, um, um, you know, quote unquote, bad spirits hanging around. Uh, so I just wonder like how prevalent this, this uh, idea or this perception is. Is this like something that is... Um, you know, um, very, very common uh, amongst all the Brumis in the country? Uh, would it apply perhaps to uh, upper classes of society as well, uh, in addition to, to members of the working class here? Um, so this is something that happens um, in Dinjan. Uh, like every year, uh, they will recite mantras and Sanskrit um, to kind of cleanse the area, uh, this happens in like uh, every every ward of the city, and in every every state. So like, since Myanmar is a uh, you know a Buddhist majority country, so this happens nationwide, and also this ha this also happens when someone passed away. They will we will bring five monks at least, so like three or five monks, never uh, even number. So it's either one 
three or five uh, monks to come to our our home and we'll ask them to sort of recite this mantra. Exercise would be a bit of a strong word for spirits because this is like us sending off someone that we loved, we love um, to, uh, to a good place. So, so we're wishing that they go to a good place, uh, reciting that this person doesn't get stuck in our home. Uh, in a sense, like they don't feel attachments towards, you know, the, this place anymore. And so it can be both a Tinjan thing and for funerals as well. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Sorry, uh, you're about to continue? Uh, yeah, and it, not, not, it's not necessarily for upper classes of the society. It's uh, both for, it's basically for everyone. So when you see the scene in the movie, they were all sitting on the floor of, um, we call it yakwat, which is a ward. This is, uh, this is probably like a very refreshing thing to see because this doesn't happen in, uh, in Malaysia or Indonesia. So basically we just sit on the floor and the, the monks will be up on the stage and we just, um, yeah, listen to the reciting. So yeah, it have it can be for anyone, not just upper classes. Yeah, that's very intriguing. Uh, it's I mean, the, as the upper classes bit or the working class bit, because I think you mentioned something a little bit about the wine drinking, like earlier about how, or you know, it's probably not really something that he would do. It's it's a bit bourgeois or something, if I recall correctly. I said so. I was thinking like, oh, maybe there's some elements here that is kind of more for this group of people and not so much for other groups of people. So I just wanted to have a better understanding and do not necessarily um, wish, ladies and gentlemen, to denigrate anybody in any shape or form. So please do not send your hate mail to me uh, anytime soon. Um, later, maybe, but not anytime soon. Uh, let's get through the new year first, yeah? <laughs> um, I think that's just about it for, for this uh, particular um, uh, part of the discussion. Um, we're we're going to take a short break, ladies and gentlemen. And then when we get back with the second part, uh, we're kind of going to expand on some of the points that we discussed here and start to look at the context which surrounds the text of the film that is uh, Whispers of Silence by Mang Fun. So stick around. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back with the second half of today's episode where we have been talking about the Burmese short film, Whispers of Silence. Um, whisper it silently, ladies and gentlemen, but there are one or two bits that I didn't quite uh, manage to pick up in the first half of the episode there. And I'm just going to give a bit more time and space to Emily, who's going to share with us, like, apparently there's one or two things that we, we missed. Um, so let's have it, uh, Emily. Like, um, what is it that you want to share with us here about the film, Whispers of Silence? Um, just a few things that I wanted to mention is like water is very significant, significant to our, like, because I'm Buddhist, our religion. Uh, I feel like it's, get mentioned a lot 
Um, so there's this uh, specific action that we do, I guess, after reciting all the mantra and all, and all that, after we pray and all, we would have a jar, um, a silver jar, actually, and a cup specifically to, we call it yizachat, meaning where we literally uh, pour water into the cup until the mantra is done for, for a segment, a segment of the whole prayer. So this is the action that we do uh, when we're doing good deeds and we're sending the good deeds to our loved ones who passed. Um, or in the case of just doing good deeds, donating something in the new year or, yeah, this is something that's happens a lot. Yeah, I guess. Oh, that's very good. I mean, very good and positive thoughts and ideas to, to have here. I suppose, I mean, in the general sense, there's a sense of like, um, you know, it's, it's not just, because when you explain that, I'm just trying to think about how water interacts with, in my case, the Muslim practices I go through on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, it hit me um, like a splash of water in the face. Um, you know, Muslims kind of perform the wudu, right? So before we pray, we're supposed to kind of like do a basic process of like just washing um, certain parts of our body that we'll use for our prayers and such. So I suppose now that I look at it and I think about it a bit more, that's like a, a much bigger thing. You know, in, in Christianity as well, you have the notion of, of holy water, which works perhaps in a similar fashion to what we've talked about earlier. So there's, uh, there are bits and bobs here where, you know, water is just something that connects human beings in a variety of different ways. And in this context, it's kind of being interpreted or reinterpreted in, in more spiritual and, and religious senses. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Thank you very much for that, um, Emily. Uh, is there anything else you want to add on on top of that? I guess like holy water in the sense also, it's very common mm. to like Dinjen and our religion in general, because it's something that the when the monks were reciting, it's it's there. The water bottles are around them. So mm. we in a sense we believe that it's blessed. And that water can be used to spread around the house to mm. ward off the bad spirit or anything. Mm. Um yeah, so holy water, in a sense, is also very important in our religion. Mm. Yes, absolutely. In there's there's even that one scene where this lady is just you know we see her from the outside, just like uh, just just dropping a few drops of water uh, just on the balcony in in the, in the film itself. So again, um, there you go, making things a bit more spiritual, enhancing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, your deeper senses in today's episode, a lot more than usual, um, because I can promise you, you're not going to get this kind of spiritual chat when it comes to Star Wars, um, or at least in our discussion of Star Wars, um, <laughs> which we did some time ago. But nevertheless, we're going to come back to this. And in the second half of today's episode, good people, we are going to be expanding a bit more on the context of the film that we have seen here, uh, in particular on the one of the directors, um, and in the festival in which this film was um, 
celebrated and in the bigger picture Burmese cinematic uh, appreciation uh, context itself. Um, in terms of one of the directors here, uh, I, I must admit I am less familiar with the works of uh, Zor Bobo Hain. So we kind of just push him aside for a bit. My apologies for that, Mr. Zor, but um, uh, a big part of that is because I'm, I just happen to be a little bit more familiar with the works of, uh, of uh, Mang Phone. Um, he is uh, a filmmaker who's been around for a bit. I'm just going to read out a bit of his biography here because this film is actually not a one-off, you know, in, in, in terms of the theme, the expression, the way in which um, certain concepts are illuminated or expressed and whatnot, okay? So just a brief biography here about um, the one of the co-directors here. Um, would, would I, which, which one is surname, Emily? Is it Maung or Phun or... Fun fact about Burmese people, we don't ha actually have a surname. Oh, there you go. Just have names. So, so who, who, if I were to refer to him just using just one name, I refer to him as Bong? I or guess do I... it's weird for him to have just Mao, because Mao in, in Burmese is also just mean Mr. Um, All right. Yeah, younger. Oh, does it? Yeah. So, oh, my goodness. And ma, ma, someone, someone, ma, someone, someone. So it's like, yeah. Right. So and I will have to. Another like endearing, calling like endearing name, like a pet name for, for your lover to, to right. a guy from a girl. Like, like ma is someone who's younger. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh my goodness. It's like Korean 101 all over again. Yeah, it's like there's a difference between Hyong and Opa. It's like, oh goodness me. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm just gonna stick with both his names here. It's a very yeah. clever part on him because in this case, there's my name. Say it loud and say it proud. And and that's what we're gonna do here. Um, because uh Maung Phone, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he made his debut film called The Bell in 2017. It was selected in the main competition of the Watan Film Festival. And in 2018, I think he took part uh, again in another filmmaking workshop between Watan Film Festival and uh, the Film and Television School of Academy of Performing Arts, or FAMU, uh, which is a Czech filmmaking school, uh, apparently the fifth oldest in Europe. So there's, there's some legacy right there. Um, and then he made his second short film, Void, which was lengthy. I think it's like 28 minutes, right? But... I, it's also a film that I'm a big fan of. Um, I've, I saw it when it was uh, screened in the Locarno International Film Festival uh, in the Open Doors uh, section in 2020. I thought it's great. Uh, and I think with regards to Void here, uh, we actually even wrote a review. We published a review on Thoughts on Film some time ago. Um, and this one, uh, again, the, the part of the quote, uh, part of the review that I think is relevant here is the, you know, this bit here. As empathetic as they may be for one another, again, the story is of a man and a woman, you know, they live in separate houses and yet they kind of like, they fancy each other, but they don't really express the love for each other, right? So both of them are trapped within the social structures, the flat or the, the apartment itself, a prison standing in, in for this faceless society, closing in on them and with no way out. So again, Emily, I think I'm, you know, guilty of overanalyzing things. But then I came, came across another film that, He's directed a more recent one called Nandar. And again, I have not seen the film Nandar, but the, the story tells you everything, right? Nandar, a hairdresser, is stuck at work during holidays. 
struggling with an intense personal problem, she tries to find a possible escape in her next door neighbor. So without having seen Nandar, but having seen Void and having seen Whispers of Silence, I look at this, you know, very minimal and economical stories, um, you know, few characters told in, in very confined spaces and, and, you know, not a lot being expressed by way of explicit or externalized dialogue, but very much a lot of this kind of tension, you know, um, swimming uh, in, in a very volatile fashion, you know, vo vo very volatile undercurrents, if you will, in terms of the, the emotions which lie beneath. So the question I have for you, Emily, I mean, I, I don't kind of like expect you to be the voice of Burmese cinema here suddenly out of nowhere, but, you know, you've been there, you said that you've grew, you've, you've grew up in Yangon, um, you, you know, you're perhaps more familiar with the cultural capital of the country there. So the question I have for you is just how representative are the kind of stories that we have seen here? Um, how representative are they in, in, in Burmese cinema? Uh, can we look at the films that I've mentioned just now, Nandar, Void, and Whispers of Silence, and say that they are present in mainstream cinema in Myanmar, or are they like more limited to the independent spaces and such? Uh, yeah, so I think these stories and short films are very much comes from like independent filmmakers. <laughs> independent filmmakers struggles a lot in Myanmar because um, so as democracy kind of opened up in 2015, so as the the censorship and all that started to relax, a lot of independent filmmakers started to want to um, make stories that are not out of, uh, not the same as the mainstream uh, cinema in Myanmar. So like they are starting to break free from the mainstream media, mainstream cinema. So I guess they don't represent them in a sense, but it represents the new and upcoming filmmakers like Naji and Daidi. And um, there's a lot of directors who came back from um, studying abroad and they would want to make new films uh, new like new films that are from different perspective yeah okay I, it sounds i think in essence similar to a lot of other contexts in southeast asia as well where the mainstream stuff tends to be i don't know can i say that the mainstream stuff in myanmar is a little bit more of like um you know a bit of comedy a bit of romance and and and, and all that kind of stuff um would i be right in saying that very much cringy comedy, comedy like <laughs> and very cringy romance, uh, romance stories like, and these stories are usually controlled by the government. Um, so like the Burmese committee, Burmese film board. There's this film board. Most of most of the board members are usually old, older generations. So they have this mindset of. Yeah, like a, a bit more narrow-minded mindset. And usually the independent filmmakers and the film board kind of clash because of what we want to present is not exactly Burmese or doesn't go according to the cultural and, you know, whatnot. So, yeah, it happens a lot. And it was actually com becoming to, it coming into a direction of, um, it's becoming more open and we are covering a lot of subjects like 
um, for example, sex, violence, and um, even alcohol in films. So we're bringing in more of that. We're becoming more open to that. Uh, and suddenly in 2021, things happen. So we are in the direction of nowhere again. We're, the film industry right now in Myanmar is just probably non-existent. Okay, Emily, oh, that was uh, actually quite enlightening. I just want to kind of pick up a bit more of the thread here. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the film board or the, the censorship board, um, in a sense, kind of being, um, you know, being very present, but also not being kind of uh, as directly engaged with the younger generation or more contemporary perspectives here. I just want to move a little further forward um, into the, the rundown here because censorship is actually a, a big deal here. So I'm kind of just getting into a bit here by Ma Tutu Shane. Am I saying that name correctly? Um, Tutu Shane, yes. Tutu Shane, I guess. Tutu Shane, yes. So she is the festival director um, for the Watan Film Festival. But in this context, um, in, in a Locarno discussion in relation to the, um, you know, the censorship situation here, um, in, in the Locarno session in in August 2020, she talked about how films basically are placed under the Ministry of Information and not the Ministry of Religious Affairs and Culture. Uh, for censorship, the script is submitted before the shoot and the, the film is submitted as well later on for censorship after filming. And in this case, there are 13 representatives from different ministries. So for instance, the Ministry of Health and Sports can also object to smoking scenes. And much of this process as um, you have pointed out earlier, it's also based on somewhat outdated regulations as they are applying film law from 1996. So there's a need for that to kind of just be brought up to speed in the 21st century here. And it's worth kind of bearing that in mind because as we mentioned in the first part of today's pod, ladies and gentlemen, there is, uh, there is, uh, there's a bit here uh, where even the film itself faced some problems. Um, so, uh, when the film was first screened uh, at the Watan Film Festival in the eighth edition of the festival, um, the Myanmar Censorship Board, according to an article on Frontier Myanmar here, the Myanmar Censorship Board had problems with the woman drinking wine with the husband uh, and a scene where the husband also throws the bottle of holy water on the floor. So again, I'm quoting uh, Ma Tutu Shain here, um, we discussed this issue and tried to convince the censorship board that it's only a fictional character and not the actor as a person who throws the holy water on the floor. And eventually a compromise was negotiated in which the holy water scene was retained and the water was shown, uh, and, and the woman was shown raising a glass of wine to her lips, but the image of her taking a sip was cut. Um, how does this, like knowing the bigger picture context here, Emily, how does this kind of affect your view or your perspective of um, Burmese films or cinema? Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about how some of the major mainstream films, um, you say cringe and whatnot, right? I think cringe is not bad, but, you know, we'll kind of like, we'll, we'll go with the mainstream idea here, right? This all, all have been pre-approved by the government. Is, is that therefore something that you look at and you think, um, yeah, you know, by watching this film, uh, you know, I'm kind of accepting the government view or can you kind of just go and kind of just enjoy it as a film per se? Mm. 
I think one of the reasons that Burmese uh, films are being restricted in the way of like creativity and story plots is much weaker because of the restrictions that we have. It's like even if you want to shoot something that's out of apart from the mainstream, you still need to go through this um, censorship board that has mainstream ideas. So things like throwing the holy water away or just trying to sip a wine, it's just a, a big thing for the censorship board. And they don't want to promote anything that's um, not culturally appropriate to, to the audience. I grew up with um, foreign films being censored, the, like even if a woman's showing her cleavage or, or sipping wine, they will blur it out, blur the face out or, or just completely cut the scene. So I'm not surprised that this happens in Burmese film too. So most of our films are very much, yeah, culturally... Um, restricted, I guess. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll get we'll get to a space in which perhaps they are less restricted, a space in which they are, they are more celebrated, more than anything else. But when you said that foreign films are being restricted here, it reminded me of a time when I went to watch The Matrix Revolutions, which is a second Matrix film um, in the original trilogy, if you will. And there's, this, there's a bit where Neo is supposed to kiss another character played by Monica Bellucci, right? And then he, he gives this one like very quick kiss because right? he doesn't really want to kiss her because Trinity is his actual girlfriend, so to speak, is there, right? But then, and then Monica Bellucci, the character, her character said, no, I want a real kiss, right? So he goes on the quick peck and then kind of move away again. And then Monica Bellucci insisted on in another one. And they're getting a bit closer, they get a bit closer, right? And then we cut to a face of Trinity. It's like there's a bit of tension rising here or, you know, it's not going to be so good. You're going to get closer, closer. And then suddenly the next, because this, the kiss itself is cut, you know, what you get is um, the music building up to the kiss. And then suddenly when they move apart, the music also changes as well because when they cut the bit out, course they have to cut the audio out as well so you just get this ding, ding, you know because the moment has, has, um it's, it's also removed so everybody in the cinema got quite a shock there you know Dolby surround sound people not, not always the best of things especially when you don't expect it um so I suppose in that context Malaysia is itself in a way not necessarily exempt um, from the similar um, factors that you discussed there. But as I mentioned earlier, there's one space in which, you know, a lot more of these kind of stories and films are celebrated. And that space is, um, coming back to, to the slides here, is what is known as the Watan Film Festival. Okay, um, Again, looking at the bio here on the, uh, on the uh, rundown for today's episode, the Watan Film Festival is a film festival dedicated to independent and non-commercial films in Myanmar, started by filmmakers and activists in 2011 at the beginning of the country's transition period to democracy, it has soon become the main platform for exchange and effective uh, and effectively shares artistic expression. The annual festival offers thematic and curated film screens of local as well as international independent films. And it brings the local and international film community together, not just via the film medium, but also through participating filmmakers and curators programmers from other parts of the world, okay? 
um, I'm looking at this and I think that in a Malaysian context, we can kind of equate this to the Freedom Film Fest, which is another you know, film event or, or platform through which people kind of like share and make films that are usually a lot more independent and non-commercial. Uh, I wonder, um, I wonder, Emily, like, you know, whether this is like a big thing, you know, for, for film lovers in Myanmar, like what, 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 you know, when you say Watan, is it something that everybody knows? Like in Malaysia, if you say Freedom Film Fest, everybody who is in that context would, would know about it. So does it kind of work in the same way? Um, how important is the Watan Film Festival for the film community in Myanmar? And are there any other kinds of spaces in Myanmar like this, where these kind of activities also take place? Um, okay, please don't quote me. I actually don't know much about Watan Film Festival, uh, but the this is something that I guess um, according to like a lot of countries that I've seen and learned about like um, film movements in history and whatnot um, I think this is something that kind of it's a pivot point for Burmese film uh, Burmese, Burmese cin cinema I guess uh, because we're transitioning from the old mainstream films to something that's new, something that's done by young people for younger audiences. Yeah, so I think 2011 is probably one of the uh, years that the beginning of the years that that Myanmar cinema was transitioning to um, kind of like a new wave, I would say. But um, the history of Myanmar cinema is not really recorded anywhere, so I can't really proof anything but yes it's it's one of the years where like a lot of uh, independent filmmakers are coming back in and making some sort of a new wave I guess so it's interesting to me that this what then festival was was happening since 2011 because to be honest I wasn't into films as a film student, I wasn't learning about films as a film student before uh, when I before I joined university. So I didn't learn much about my own country's film history back then. So like looking back, this is something that's like interesting because as our country's um, politic political situation was shifting along the along that our film um, history was also like changing to somewhere else. All right. So I think in this case, we can kind of like see a, a close correlation between how, you know, in in Myanmar, you know, the political spaces when they open up and you kind of have a bit more time and space to kind of really work through certain things creatively. That's when the kind of cultural expressions also change as well. And when things kind of close down a bit more, you know, things become a bit different there. Not, not too different than, I suppose, in that regard and in principle to Malaysia, you know, when in 2018, we had a new government come in. Um, this is film historian Hassan Mutalik who spoke about how the films that came in in the in the time of the Pakatan uh, Harapan government coming in, and then you know things kind of quote unquote become more open, more this and what you know people are more hopeful, etc. So you do get more and more films that that kind of center on themes that perhaps would not have been explored as much if uh, they were made under. Uh, previous administrations where the, the, the mindset or the, the, the feel in the air is 
one that's a lot more restrictive than, than a lot of people would like. So I think in that, you know, in, in broad strokes of the brush here, ladies and gentlemen, you can see how there's a close correlation um, between certain aspects of Myanmar uh, cinema, you know, films in Myanmar and films in Malaysia here as well. Um, but yeah, I think all the same, I'm, I'm very happy that Watan is there. I must admit, I'm not really like, you know, the, the biggest expert here myself. Um, and, you know, I, I just feel like that this, there's a lot that they're doing right here. Um, they, they also have their YouTube channel, uh, which, you know, you can kind of check out quite a number of, of their films. Some of them are really good. Um, I just feel like, you know, if I have more time, I kind of just want to sit down and just kind of go through a number of them and just like, you know, um, write more about uh, films in Myanmar, ladies and gentlemen. But, you know, time and tide waits for no man, as the random notebook said, um, if you buy it. You know, you get, you know, if you buy these books that are made in China, sometimes you get some really random uh, words of wisdom, uh, which can be quite useful for us to bear in mind. But we shall bear that in mind because time and tide has not waited for us. For well, we have, ladies and gentlemen, reached the end of today's episode. We've covered quite a lot of ground, I think, in just about a touch over an hour. But all the same, I'm keen to just check in for the last time with Emily here, um, you know, Emily, we're you know, not going to do this entirely, there are all sorts of justice, but point is Myanmar has a long and proud history of filmmaking with over a century's worth of sound and images, right? And I think as, as we have also talked about just now as well, in more recent times, there's an improvement in the quantity and quality of Burmese films, even if some of the more mainstream ones, as, as you say, is a bit cringier than you would like it to be. Um, for listeners who are not Burmese, I wonder um, what would you like the listeners to kind of know or take away from this session about Burmese cinema and, and films? I guess um, as like a Southeast Asian, like part of the Southeast Asian um, like film community, I guess we I guess we learned a little bit more about like, each other's culture through movies and films. So I hope you can learn something about Burmese culture from Burmese films. Um, you know, if you have never watched it before, give it a try. It's not that bad. I mean, there are bad ones. Don't watch them. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't watch the bad ones. I think that's a good takeaway. Don't watch the bad yeah, ones. Don't watch the bad ones. Just watch... Uh, uh, what then cinema, what then film festival, check it out. Uh, I feel like it's well, it was going into a good direction. It was something that younger generations would have enjoyed. And I think thanks to YouTube, we're still able to make some sort of films, even though it's a downtime in Myanmar right now. But yeah. It's YouTube and COVID, actually, Emily. Um, I mean, not not I don't want to say thanks to COVID, but you know, it's because of this whole lockdown thing that a lot more things started to get posted online and whatnot. So, True. so I appreciate it because, you know, I'm not here to talk about the bad side of COVID, which hopefully everybody will know, but the good side is um, I was able to kind of better know a bit more of films and filmmakers from Myanmar. So on that regard, I'm a, I appreciate that the pros um, to go with the cons uh, in, in of, of that context there. We'll see what the future holds for all of us, ladies and gentlemen. But for now, it's time for us to say goodbye. Say goodbye, Emily. Bye-bye. And it's a goodbye for me, folks. I'll, we'll catch you next time, whenever and wherever that may be. Bye. Everything is okay. I just want to play. Unplug for the day and live it up.
in the morning.